Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Okay, good morning and welcome. Uh, this is a very special episode. I'm joined with uh, by two friends of mine, Zach Lokes and Shad Goodsey from Atitlan Organics. And this is a rare opportunity to speak to them both in person because they're both busy fellas and Zach lives in Canada and is just visiting for a short time. So we're going to make the most out of their experience and their stories today and talk a little bit about a lot of different topics. But let's start by checking in on how the permaculture design certification course is going. Uh, Shad, tell me how it's it's been going for you. Yeah, thanks, Oliver, for uh, having us here. It's, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, yeah, so far, we're, we're almost a full week into the PDC right now, and uh, it's the first time I'm working together with Zach, and and it's just been great absolutely we have we have 16 participants on the course from eight different countries and as always uh lake atilan and and uh the farm atilan organics tends to attract like quite a diverse diverse group of people from all over the world so you see a lot of people within the group just sharing their experiences which is super awesome and i've been sitting in on basically all of zach's lectures and really just expanding my knowledge base as well he's he's super talented and it's been a pleasure to listen to you man for sure um for me part of my intention always with these pdcs is to really continue to respect the diversity of of permaculture and just try to introduce students to as many different interpretations of the permaculture principles and the practices uh depending on your climates and your topography and all the other parameters that you're working with in a site so we just had a field trip yesterday um just kind of going around the valley and seeing all the awesome stuff that's happening here so just really trying to expose uh uh, all of ourselves to to all the different diverse interpretations of permaculture. I mean, sweet. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, you know, I'd uh, I'd echo a lot of that, and and thanks again, Oliver, for having us here this morning. Having a nice cup of coffee, sitting around with the sun on our backs, and beautiful view. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the course has been going great, and we've uh, been covering a lot of uh, topics, kind of starting with the basics of just grounding all the students in the natural reality, you know, understanding that our world is an atmosphere and a hydrosphere and a lithosphere, and that biosphere is right there at the middle of it, and really looking into soil as kind of a, a, a constant case study throughout the course this week, you know, so always referring back to it, uh, regardless of where we are in our day, um, and 
practicing a little bit of, uh, you know, putting on your, your ecological goggles, as I like to say. So getting the students to you know, go through their day when they're not in class and just, you know, observe wind and observe water and observe soil uh, to get a sense of how we can see those connections b- between them all. And I think that everybody's getting a, a really good feel for it. You know, we've we've gone out for the field trip now after getting, a, a, you know, three days of classes and they've been working on some side projects, which we're actually going to go down and hear some presentations this morning. So looking forward to see how they're interpreting a lot of the knowledge sharing that's been going on. Fantastic. I know both of you now just mentioned the field trips that you came off of the other day. Now, I've been living here for a year and a half, and I feel horrible that I haven't made it out to Kishaya and some of these other amazing sites that you guys get to visit on the courses. Could each of you tell me a little bit about the places that you went to and the impression that you got? Because both of them are phenomenal examples of how permaculture is taking root among other communities here in Guatemala, and it's not just coming from us. Uh, what were your impressions, Zach? You know, uh, both sites we went to were incredible. Kishaya was uh, just a little slice of paradise. Um, it, it was a, a valley, very abundant in water resources, um, very rough land on the sides, but really being maximized in so many different ways uh, with the production of watercress uh, and um, the growth of tilapia and a lot of food forest production in an overstory of their coffee and also just the community dynamic, the story behind that, which um, is also quite phenomenal. Um, but it was, re- it was really great to see that uh, being held um, and really the connection to the local traditional culture and practices, but also there's a lot of movement forward uh, with that younger generation bringing that, the, the community together to create more profitable avenues for the sale of their products. And it's, yeah, it's a great site. It was incredible. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, Kishaya, which is basically a thousand meters lower in elevation than where we're at here in Lake Atilan. So it's a different ecosystem, a different climate. It's m- much more tropical, um, you know, dominant species being like mangoes and uh, cacao and avocados, things like that. And yeah, basically everything that Zach said, I- I've been going to Kishaya for six years now. I've probably been there about 50 times. And uh, every time I go, I just get some new inspiration something new to try they're they're raising snails now and they're uh use the the taro root leaves to feed the snail and naturally they eat the root crop uh they take the eggs from the snails and feed them to their hens uh to increase egg production and they're they're really good at creating cycles um and not bringing in outside inputs so they're really good at just doing what they need to do with what they have on on site and um you never get the feeling that they're lacking something. That's what I think is most amazing is like, they're, you know, by any maybe developed country standards, they would be considered, you know, in a poverty region, a poor poor community but you go in there and all you see is richness and you get this i get this feeling like i like they don't they're not lacking anything they have all the food they want they have natural spring-fed swimming pools with clean water and just like just a beautiful life they built and then uh we started that day in the market actually in santiago and just exploring a local open-air market is always awesome and seeing the genetics of the plants the food crops uh meeting the local farmers and then then we went to the mesoamerican institute of permaculture 
Ranger. Uh, I just got to see their project. And, you know, I think every student bought some heirloom seeds. They have an amazing seed bank. So people are spreading these genetics around. And yeah, I just think all around it was a great day visiting Guatemalan projects on this day. All Guatemalan founded, Guatemalan run. Um, just seeing, seeing their interpretation of permaculture. Yeah, that's been my impression, even though I haven't visited these sites directly, from hearing the stories that you bring back and that Neil brings back from these courses, the Guatemalan interpretation of what we're trying to promote through permaculture has been something that really far exceeds what we could have brought on our own. Like, what we've learned from our own countries is definitely valuable and has brought some insights and some learning to certain aspects and contexts here, but really... The understanding of the local ecology and the cultural knowledge that they put into these projects just completely supersedes anything that we could have helped them set up, and it's really inspiring. Now, um, Zach and I talked the other day about some of the kind of unique factors that we have here and on our our two different landscapes. Yours, obviously, is a lot more developed because you've been up there for, what, nearly eight years now? Eight and a half years. And And so, your systems are quite a bit more mature, but we're just slightly down the hill from you and in a very similar ecosystem. Perhaps we get a little bit more sun exposure where we are, and um, of course, there are different microclimates, but the amendments that have to be done to such rocky soil here can be a real challenge. Could each of you talk a little bit about some of the things that have been most challenging in your respective farms um, just to kind of work around in order to bring more abundance on the site. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. Um, for sure, the, the the land here, I think the best way that I found to describe it is it's just broken. It's, it's broken land. It's uh, very little soil. It's rocks everywhere. There's really no flat spots. I, I call our farm the chicken tractor graveyard. It's the place where chicken tractors go to die. Um, I've built probably 20 or so different variations of chicken tractors with, you know, some on stilts and all different things I could think of. And, you know, there's not ever enough flat space to even rest a small chicken tractor um so growing up in new jersey kind of near the coast these flat sandy soils it was much more difficult coming here um i think i think we do focus one of our main uh kind of cash crops is is salad and cooking greens and so we are slowly making these terraces and you know maybe every 10 square meters of terrace is just hours and hours of labor of moving rocks and breaking rocks and bringing in compost uh so that alone it just it's a, a big time and energy investment just to make uh farmable land uh i would say also that despite being on the farm for eight years and this is something i encourage anyone that i work with or teach to i always say you know just just get the seed in the ground this is my motto like just just get the seed in the ground and then you'll learn a lot more than trying to wait for everything to be perfect and i think the flip side of that advice is you do all this stuff at the beginning and then you start to see the patterns of the land and the energy flows and no matter how much you should wait a year before you do anything permanent on the land that's a really hard principle to to stick to and so a lot of what i see now eight years into our farm is really like regathering reintegrating all my observations from the past eight years and then kind of 
forcing myself to overcome the hesitation to make big dramatic changes and actually do that. Change things where I need to take out things that aren't working, input things that can be working better. And really, I feel in a sense like I'm starting fresh again, which which is a bit scary, but also really exhilarating. Yeah, it's um, it's been interesting to see just the, the rawness of the land here, the steep slopes, all the rock. Um, I definitely have a lot of rock that I deal with on my property as well, but it's concentrated along the ridge. Um, my farm has a, a glacial moraine ridge that goes down the middle uh, with clay fields on either side. Um, so a lot of the process there has been gaining a greater understanding of the different soils that are on the property. <clears throat> and how to farm them more appropriately. So uh, focusing on the, the ridge line, um, I've developed a method of pit and mound orcharding uh, because there's all these natural depressions. So instead of doing the work of, you know, going in there and, um, you know, making contours and, and making, um, you know, swales and berms, I'm actually using the natural swales and berms that are occurring within the property uh, and planting fruit trees there because the soil is actually very rich there. Uh, there's a lot of organic matter that's, that has accumulated on the ridge line because it has hasn't been farmed as much because the land was so raw. So in a way, sometimes I feel like, you know, rocks are almost like this blessing that we have because a lot of the land that's really rocky has actually seen a little less abuse in some senses. So, um, yeah, so starting on that ridge, you know, farming that more appropriately by doing this pit and mound orchard technique. Um, and then, you know, I have this really deep gray clay um, and that's been uh, a challenge, uh, you know, in a different way because it's so heavy. It compacts so easily uh, it can really easily get waterlogged and then at the same time become completely impermeable to water so then it can actually dry out you know just days after a rain it's uh, it's it's quite interesting phenomena so I've been working to create you know raised beds that are really high to get as much organic matter in uh, using a, a sandwich bedding technique of growing cover crop and letting it self sow and then raising the path material on top and sandwiching that down and then letting cover crop grow so creating space uh, that has like a long-term intention towards garden uh, in order to have the slow improvement of that heavy clay. Uh, the best soil on the farm is like a, a, a kind of a clay loam. Um, it's got some rocky phases and some stony phases, but uh, focusing the most of my um, production there as I've been slowly improving the areas that have a less ideal uh, agricultural soil. So kind of seeing that long-term intention has been a big part of the land improvement on my farm. Yeah, I think it's remarkable that a lot of the limiting factors for farming, uh, coming from my perspective of specializing a bit more on the building side, usually the soils that are awful for agriculture are phenomenal for building in some way or another. And that's definitely what we've tried to make use of here because basically we're in an earlier stage of what you're trying to, or what you've already accomplished up on your farm shed. And that's like sifting a lot of the stones and the rocks out of the soil so that you are left with like the sandy loam that we do have here as much as it's in smaller quantities. And in that process, since we have to do it anyway, we're just separating out the gravel or the things that are of like size to use as gravel. And we get to avoid having to import it from down further in the river or anywhere else really. Uh, the bigger rocks we're using to make drywalls for terraces and quite frankly we've got big enough boulders that we're actually able to completely avoid using any cement in the construction of all of our buildings uh, including the goat house and the main house so you know 
if you've got to go through those processes anyway, like in, in your case, Zach, uh, with the really heavy clay soils, if I were over there, you know, I'd just be like making adobe bricks or mixing cob out of those things. And, you know, during that process, you can amend the soil for agriculture with the leftovers and stuff. But all the stuff that you're trying to take out, I always see as opportunities to make building material too. So, could each of you talk a little bit about some like unforeseen but creative solutions that you came up with over the time on your farm just due to observation and, you know, possibly some uh, insights that you wouldn't have seen going into it as a designer, but came up as you interacted with those living systems? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, definitely like whenever I think about living systems, I start to think about like the ecosystem services, um, this idea of, of maximizing the wind and the water and the earth and the, th the things that the ecosystem does on its own on a piece of property. And through observation, being able to find creative solutions to how we can harness uh, that power. Uh, one example I like to give is that on the back of my property, there's a really old uh, heritage maple and oak uh, bush lot area. And uh, it's got these beautiful old sugar maples. They're, you know, 150 plus years old, uh, really big, very sweet. And I wanted to have more of the these growing and be able to spread them into the community. I was noticing that because the, the bush lot is not um, a dense forest, a more kind of naturalized forest, but rather a, a remnant on the edge of the glacial moraine, that the young germinating uh, sugar maples were not surviving a year. So they would, they would grow down in the leaf litter, um, but they wouldn't make it. They would burn out or they'd get eaten. They weren't surviving. It was getting too dry. So I started to think about, okay, how can I, um, you know, better cultivate an understory? And I started w watching the, the really prevalent westerly winds and seeing that I had an opportunity to actually create a catchment for these sugar maples um, downhill. So I built uh, a few beds on contour and uh, on the, the southern bed, I planted some fast growing birch and some currants to create a bit of a shelter because the sugar maple, as we know, doesn't actually like to grow uh, in full sun, especially when it's young. So the first bed downhill that was in, on the southern side was, was a, a, a sun block for the um, germinating sugar maples. And the second bed, I rolled out uh, a small, um, uh, sorry, a, a round bale of hay to create a moist environment. And in the depressions uh, between these beds, what happened was the wind was blowing the sugar maples down there. But whereas before they were, you know, sprouting thousands of sugar maples and dying within the year, now what was happening is the sugar maples were getting caught in the in the hay. Uh, the water was collecting in the in the depressions, and they were able to grow and flourish even through the dry season and have this protection from the the birch and the current to shelter and shade them. And over the years. What happened is I now have about 6,000 uh, heritage sugar maples that are growing along a line. Um, and it was just that initial investment of bed making and a bale of hay. Um, I couldn't have done it any better. Uh, it would only have cost more money to kind of create any other model than I've done. And they're, they're getting big. I've got these big clumps now that I'm able to pull out with uh, 16 foot sugar maples at the center and then a, a handful of five foot sugar maples and then a whole bunch of babies underneath. So they're like little sugar maple micro ecosystem bombs that I can pull out and drop somewhere else to start. Uh, you know, that sugar maple um, layer within any northern food forest design. So it's a really great thing that that uh, uh, 
I like to go back to, I did say this to the students this week too, just, just to show that, you know, you can find resources all around you, like seeing that bush and thinking about using that seed, and then you can maximize the services of wind and water uh, in order to create a design that's uh, affordable and effective. Yeah, I like that. Uh, I That actually never occurred to me at all, like just to create a bed to capture airborne seeds of any sort. I really think that's a, a great, great application of kind of like minimum work for maximum return, uh, minimum input for, for a lot of output and, and solving a problem that the ecology is throwing at you, that these maples weren't germinating. This uh, great, great example. Um, yeah, for me... Uh, you know, loads of stuff, just, you know, things that come to mind right at the, off the top of my head is just novel combination of plants. Uh, just, you know, we plant a lot of passion fruits. We have five varieties of passion fruits on the farm. Um, and just always looking for living trellises. And I think the general approach is you grow passion fruit on like a tree, preferably maybe a non-fruiting tree. Uh, but a lot of times you don't have a tree where you want to plant the passion fruit. Uh, and there's a plant that I've noticed growing wild in the valley. They call it wild daga. Uh, it's in the bee balm. It looks like a massive bee balm, basically spiky flower with these little orange like flower petals coming out of it uh, and what i learned actually is the the passion fruits which we generally propagate from cuttings will grow really slowly they'll leaf out but they won't really leap up for a couple months um whereas the wild daga in a seed will just leap you know in a month or two it'll be a couple of feet tall so i've i've come to i've started basically whenever we plant out a passion fruit cutting we just throw a few wild daga seeds there and by the time the passion fruit's ready to climb on something the wild dog is already two or three feet tall with a decent enough stem. So I use that system just to like get passion fruits up to a trellis or up above a wall, something like that. So lots of novel combinations of plants. Um, also just, uh, for me, a big one was just watching my chickens, you know, like I think I went through, I think a lot of people managing animals will, will start to really observe the nuanced impacts that animals have on the landscape. Uh, just just today, actually, Oliver and Neil and Jeremy here have our goats. So they're taking care of our goats for basically 15 months while we really focus on honing in the production and, and packaging and marketing of, of our other products. Um, and I was just commenting to Zach before this podcast that uh, over five years, the goats really transitioned all the area they grazed from like bushy kind of sh like brush type material to a beautiful pasture then now you could actually probably put sheep up there or, or cattle whereas before it wouldn't have supported that that sort of livestock so just watching animals and their their impacts on the land and uh definitely making loads of mistakes i i kept too many chickens on one piece of land for too long and they just destroyed the land and kind of created a, like a, a bit of a desert like you know it's prone to erosion and a lot of like soil moving where it shouldn't be moving and very little nutri uh, nutritional feed stock left for the chickens naturally they eat what they prefer and if you don't give the ground time to rest it never grows back so then eventually they're the only things that are growing there are things that the chickens don't like um, so even just that idea that, that the chicken, that animals will shift the composition of plant species on a land has really like, wow, I never really understood that until I saw it. And now that influences all my animal design systems. Um, growing out of that observation, I was, I was felt called to look for a way to keep my chickens inside 
there's loads of reasons and situations across the world where chickens might not be able to go outside. Maybe it's an urban setting where they're not allowed to range or in a suburban setting, maybe where all your backyard is already garden and you don't want your chickens to destroy your garden. Or even somewhere like here in, in rural Guatemala where chickens outdoors usually give their eggs to the dogs and you don't end up capturing that manure, which is a super important resource in a place like this. Um, so we've ended up out of all those observations, uh, creating our deep bedding chicken house, which basically realized that, hey, uh, instead of moving the animal to a fresh ecosystem, like instead of moving the chickens to a fresh piece of grass with a chicken tractor or a, or a feather net type thing, we actually decided to bring the ecosystem to the animal. And so by building a healthy hot compost pile under our chickens, it solved a lot of our problems. So uh, for me, that w- that's a big one is just realizing the actual impacts that animals have on the landscape. Uh, And I think Oliver will be doing a a whole podcast dedicated to animal systems. So uh, look out for that because we'll get a lot more details for that as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I want to revisit something that you mentioned earlier. I know that you've rented your goats out to us for about 15 months, and there's a number of benefits for both of us in that case. You get to cut down on the maintenance and the chores that are required for kind of one of the more minor enterprises of your farm. And we get to bring in basically just world-class biodigesters to convert a ton of organic matter into useful soil and compost while we're building up our bed system. So I would love to hear from both of you a little bit more about some ways that community has really helped in the development of your enterprises and your your landscape management, Um, aside from maybe just the obvious of like sharing seeds and advice. How has the community come through for you in your development, in your education? And um, give me some stories about how it's sort of enriched your experience and helped you to move forward faster. Well, you know, fundamentally, you know, any successful farm or uh, ecological business is going to need to take into account, you know, your personal goals, your personal skills, you know, your community, um, what they can offer you, what you can offer them, and your land and the ecology that exists there. So creating that holistic balance between those three parts is going to create a really strong uh, ecological business that will be successful far into the future. Um, In my case, it's been a a really interesting um, experience going into a community where uh, initially, you know, I was the first uh, ecological farmer using words like CSA, community supported agriculture, uh, and bringing a lot of food varieties. Uh, it's a very traditional area uh, in that part of Canada. Um, so uh, it was it was a bit of a challenge at first. And I had to actually bring a lot of my products into more urban areas to sell, even though I really wanted to actually serve the more local community initially. So, you know, it was about, you know, slowly, you know, hearing from the community members what they liked, you know, uh, and understanding that, you know, you can offer some some strange or different food products uh, in small amounts, um, but then to really listen to what they like a lot of and then grow more of that. So, you know, I started to grow a lot of carrots and I built a, an alternative 
alternative root cellar um, that actually, you know, in terms of ecosystem services is, is run on, on ice power. So, you know, that actually involved the community too, because I'd get friends and other people out and they would help me make ice in the winter to put into the root cellar. So getting them involved within the farm, um, holding tree planting days. Uh, there was a great day one year where we did a tree planting and everybody got to, you know, plant trees and even, you know, name the trees after say a grandparent or a loved one or a kid, uh, creating a bit of a little like, you know, community uh, laneway through the farm. So having that kind of uh, connection uh, to the community uh, as well. And, you know, creating those opportunities as they came to um, always have involvement between uh, the community that's around the farm and the community that's within the farm. So cultivating uh, community over the years with the people who have worked on the farm and come to learn on the farm. <clears throat> Uh, and just constantly, uh, you know, having that learning experience from them as well. You know, I had uh, uh, one guy, Matt, who's been working on the farm for about seven years. And uh, honestly, you know, it's been an invaluable experience to have him working uh, on the farm Um the the kind of constant that he's brought to the farm and his attention for detail uh, has always been really rewarding for me to learn from that um, because I've had to personally learn to tighten up myself you know coming with a lot of you know ideology to farming initially and um, and then you know learning to streamline and to keep focused on enterprises um, so it's been great to have people on the farm that you know expanded on the creative side of the permaculture farming as well as people that helped you know focus down on a clear vision for the farm and just getting some good work done so no matter what community is critical uh, if you don't have people to buy your products you have nothing to sell you know and if you don't have uh, people to work with on a property and to cooperate with uh, they can be a very daunting task so um, I really recommend that. I also think just on a side note that a cooperative farming is a, is a great way to go. Um, it's often difficult initially to get going. There's a lot of decision making and communication that needs to be done. Um, but however, I'd like to say that like looking back uh, on some, some examples of this, uh, I know one farm in particular that is just doing phenomenal things now because they've been able to specialize a lot within the farm. Uh, there's the guy that just knows the tools and the machinery um, and there's the guy that knows you know the seeds and um, the crop planting guy uh, there's the, the there's the gals that are really good in the in the greenhouse work and the marketing and the community networking um, and now they're able to you know go off from the farm and come back you know so tying back into our other discussions about lifestyle you know you can cultivate a really good lifestyle if you can cultivate a farm community uh, um, so you can be based on the land working hard you know engaging with your environment uh, but still be able to participate in some of those other lifestyle activities that we all want to engage in marvelous those are some great observations shad tell us a little bit about how your interactions with the community here have helped out your enterprises obviously we're in a, quite a unique sort of circumstance being part of a very small indigenous Mayan community as well as having access to kind of the gringo community the expat community that's settled around the lake mostly um, retirees and people who have set up retreat centers and tell me how that's sort of tied into the development of your own farm yeah um, for sure so uh, you know it it is unique in the sense that that uh, 
Lake Atilan, you know, is considered one of the most beautiful lakes on the planet, surrounded by volcanoes and just the climate, the this eternal spring weather is uh, naturally prone to attract a lot of international people, people from other places who want to come here to vacation or to settle down. Um, but I think so. So we have this this clear like distinction between the international people who come to settle here like like ourselves and then the the local community that's been here for many hundreds if not thousands of years um and so i think that that yeah it is unique but i want to kind of just draw a comparison to i think kind of what you touched on as well zach being the first person using this uh this new language the first ecological farmer in your area talking about csas or possibly the only one talking about permaculture or any of these sorts of things or possibly even things like compost might be foreign to a lot of, of foreign communities even in a developed country um and i think that that if you're considering starting a farming venture and you're listening to this, this is something really worth like putting some thought into and, and having a kind of a solid approach because no matter where you go, if you buy land somewhere uh, in a farming community, chances are you will be an outsider and you'll be surrounded by people who have been there for generations who, who just because you're new, you'll be at some sort of disadvantage in a way. Um, and so kind of my advice that I, or advice and kind of my experiences that I share that I, I would just would encourage people to understand they're not just applicable if you're moving to another country, but even if you're moving just a couple miles down the road, but to a more agrarian focused community. Um, for me, first and foremost, it's like, always be a good neighbor. That was like my advice to myself, like be a good neighbor. And what does that mean? It means ask for help when you need it and offer help when it's needed, you know, and just being able to do that and kind of be willing to say, Hey, I need a hand with something. Uh, I think, uh, that's one thing people may not ever want to ask for help and then you're constantly putting yourself at a disadvantage it might be because you think you just know better than your neighbor who's spreading chemicals chances are you may not know better especially about things like localized ecology or things like that um, or maybe it's because you don't want to be a bother to them but I don't think either of those things are actual turn out to be a, a legitimate concern people if they're too busy will just politely say no uh, but similarly you know here just to not assume that every Everyone is needs help. Like, yes, this is Guatemala. This is a developing country, and uh, by a lot of standards, say from from a developed country, this might look like everyone's poor, for example. But I think starting with this mentality of we need to help everyone in this valley is actually doing everyone in this valley a big disservice. Uh, so again, I go back to this advice of ask for help when I need it, and then offer help when it looks needed and don't just assume that everyone needs help um i also like to say that you know whether it's building and natural building or farming versus organic farming and permaculture uh, i think about 60 percent of the conventional building for example or conventional farming is ex extremely relevant and applicable and and uh necessary to understand in a natural building setting or in a permaculture or profitable organic farm setting. So you can learn a lot from the, your neighbor who's, who's planting GMO soybean and spraying Roundup. You know, you can still learn a lot and maybe you don't want to dedicate your time to helping him spray Roundup, but fixing a fence post or something like that, going out and helping your neighbor. And then also 
learning to put aside those those ideological differences momentarily and learn something from each of your neighbors and i think that i think that's a big challenge for new farmers like they have this dream i'm going to make this amazing organic farm and regenerate the landscape all around me and i'm going to show all my neighbors that they don't need chemicals but it's like hey like okay that's great and keep your vision but also keep your mouth shut when you're around them and learn something cuz these guys or women have something to teach you for sure um so for me kind of to wrap this up in just a few little examples um you know even when i had a market garden i had a half acre market garden in new jersey and i didn't have any tools i was starting from scratch and even have a hose or a hoe or anything and basically my neighbor who was you know just your traditional farmer you know came over he he disked my field he plowed my field he harrowed my field three passes on a half acre and he charged me 60 bucks you know and it was just like you know that sort of tool like otherwise i'd be at best renting a rototiller from somewhere and spending all my time doing it um so sharing tools sharing knowledge sharing like skills we still don't have a chainsaw on our farm i just ask people and hire them for the day and then they're happy that that makes their chainsaw pay for itself they get a little bit of work out of it so so sharing tools and and most importantly for me here in guatemala just valuing and respecting the indigenous knowledge of plants of natural cycles of how to use a machete for example you know um i've learned like insane amounts of stuff just about valuing resources resourcefulness about being able to to identify wild plants that might have some unique function in a farm setting um so I often say when people move here and settle in as a foreigner, I say, you know, the biggest thing foreigners do wrong is they think they know better and you don't know better. You know, these guys know pretty much everything. Why don't you learn it and then just tweak it a teeny bit? to meet your ideological and personal or business goals. Uh, and that has worked for me really well. Marvis, I love so many of the things that you guys brought up. <laughs> I was just trying to recap a little bit. Um, including the observation and uh, insights, not only of the landscape as we're all taught to do from permaculture courses and, and the like, but the interactions in the community and the resources available to you aside, like within the human capital, not just the landscape capital, uh, is absolutely essential, like you said, anywhere you go. And I love that you pointed out that conventional agriculture, conventional building have tons of things of value and that when you transition into permaculture or natural building, if you throw out the whole thing because there are parts of it that are broken, you lose so much. That kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater concept. Um, usually what we're trying to accomplish only requires a couple of tweaks. And while there are some unenviable aspects of those other practices, uh, I know from my experience, especially with building, having almost eight to 10 years of conventional construction experience was probably the most valuable thing that I learned to become a natural builder. And then I took about a year of an apprenticeship to learn more natural building techniques and make use of unprocessed local materials. But honestly, when I've worked with a lot of other natural builders who don't come from a conventional building background, their organization skills are horrible. Their project planning and, you know, sourcing of materials and design and schematic reading skills are really below par. And those are some of the things that have created these successful industries 
that with only a few tweaks can really be made into something positive and regenerative, but the majority of those practices are still incredibly valuable. Um, so we got to wrap up here, but before we go, Zach, can you tell us a little bit about how our listeners can get in touch with you, follow you on social media? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram uh, at Zach Lokes, Z-A-C-H-L-O-E-K-S. And um, just, yeah, just give a shout out. You can reach me by email, same name at Gmail. Anyone who's interested in, um, you know, some free PDFs, I have some infographics on creating uh, edible ecosystems um, and, and compost guilds from scratch, uh, as well as one on my permabed system for an integrated, patterned, efficient uh, food forest design. So I'd be happy to help anyone or hear from them who's interested that's been listening to the podcast. <laughs> Marvelous. Thank you. And we'll definitely continue to be in touch. Um, I love following your travels and all of your different projects on social media. Now, Shad, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and possibly even come out here and volunteer and participate in these projects that we're doing? Yeah, thanks, Oliver. And thanks, Zach. Um, yeah, for sure. We are Atitlan Organics dot com or facebook dot com backslash Atilan Organics Instagram as well at Atilan Organics also a great YouTube channel our mildly famous YouTube channel with over seventy five videos super educational but also fun and pretty informal but but really really informative um, YouTube dot com backslash Atilan Organics uh, yeah you know. Lake Atilan is a great destination to get away, to experience some alternative lifestyle, regenerative living. Um, we do, we have a volunteer program and actually right now, or that's in transition as well. Um, I would have liked to talk a bit more about the community because I think what, what you guys would, uh, Oliver here and Jeremy and Neil are doing, working together on a piece of land uh, is something that I just find so incredibly challenging. Like the concept of that, of like sharing everything amongst three different like autonomous people just seems so overwhelming and and like you said Zach it takes a lot of discussion a lot of talking at the beginning but once things start moving it's actually an incredibly like solid model and it does allow for this lifestyle that trying to do everything on your own doesn't allow for so so maybe we'll get into that a little more later but I'm really really like excited for what you guys are doing here and and just seeing it you know from a different different approach than just like my wife and myself doing it on our own with with like a help of a team and, and the community you guys are actually a community within one site and that brings a lot of some challenges but a lot of benefits as well so because of that because i think it's such an exciting model and just that you guys are like starting out on the land the way i look at it you know right now the kind of decisions we struggle with on the farm are like kind of more tweaks to details and in a sense it's a bit less exciting to a volunteer maybe than like in a new site kind of like a decision you make will actually impact like the next 10 years for example like if you decide to do something one way versus a different way so we've transitioned our volunteer program to now actually have volunteers come and stay at the bamboo guest house but then work at abundant edge uh on developing this new site and i think that's a really great opportunity for people to see a new homestead small scale profitable little uh farm slash consulting business uh really get off the ground 
ground. And so there's opportunities to get involved as a volunteer. You could shoot us a message on any of those platforms I mentioned, Facebook, Instagram, the website. Um, also, we do courses. We always have our intro to permaculture and intro to natural building courses. They're usually aligned back to back. So you can come for two weeks and get both courses. And uh, actually, you know, talking to both you guys, Oliver and Zach, you guys have been really kind of saying, and I'm seeing this, that there's there really is a demand to go deeper, to get these like deeper knowledge and, and get a bit more advanced in the course material. And I still believe that the intro courses are just a great like doorway into regenerative living. But now we're really talking about doing some more advanced stuff. So Oliver, you have two two week kind of advanced natural building courses planned out for, for the coming high season 2018, 2019. And I think that's going to be super exciting. And I don't know if I'll mention it, I should mention it, but there's been talk of how to maybe do a natural building PDC, like how we could actually get a certification around a natural building course. So I think that's in the works and that's going to be super exciting. And then also just really hitting it off with you, Zach, and just I feel like we work really well together. And uh, so now we're talking about uh, having this advanced course following up probably towards the end of this year. So we have a lot of like the kind of traditional courses we've been offering, but also some new things in the work that I think will be really exciting for people who haven't been down here yet. And also for people who have listened and have already come and checked out our spot. So yeah, keep in mind, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and you'll get all the news for that. You can sign up for our newsletter as well. Um, and otherwise, just keep listening to the podcast. It's great, Oliver. I think you really in, in one year have accomplished in amazing amount of stuff and just getting great people on here and i'm a listener as well so proud to be here with you yeah thanks so much chad i really appreciate that and yeah before we go i want to thank you both um not only for the insights and the information that you shared with us today but also this is just an awesome way to spend a morning we're sitting here in the sunshine on our farm drinking coffee that we harvested and processed ourselves with fresh goat milk (laughs) we're going directly into the coffee it's not even cold yet it's still warm uh we've got like chocolate and cardamom from our buddy's farm up in the north of the country we've got fresh fruit and yogurt that we produce like this is what it's all about is living this kind of like fun and abundant lifestyle and the contributions that both of you have put into this with your expertise, with your generosity of knowledge, and just how much fun it's been to collaborate with you both. I'm really looking forward to, like Chad, like you said, the the more advanced courses that we're currently developing. I'll definitely uh, send out more information on that as the details get worked out. And Zach being generous with your time and coming down here and helping out our efforts and advancing permaculture knowledge in the community in general. So uh, again, thank you so much for your time. We got to do something like this again real soon. And I look forward to working with you guys more in the future all right well i'll see you tomorrow morning right (laughs) Uh, yeah thanks oliver thanks zach all right take care guys bye thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode as always you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at abundantedge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar on the website you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. 
Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.